and beyond, and here to discuss what is happening and also how we can try to prevent encounters with ticks is one of our esteemed tick experts, Dr. Beatrice M. Santier. Unfortunately, due to illness, Constance Happy Dicky, RN, is not able to join us today as scheduled, and we do hope she has a speedy recovery. So, a little bit about our guest, Dr. Beatrice Santier. She's board certified in both internal medicine and pediatrics. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's a member of the American College of Physicians and the Maine Medical Association and the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or ILADS. Dr. Santier participates in the State of Maine Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup. She also serves as a medical advisor for Maine Lyme, which is a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing Lyme and related tick disease in Maine. And in addition, she spent thousands of hours investigating Lyme disease and other tick-borne illness. Dr. Santier has given testimony before the Maine legislature concerning Lyme disease in the state of Maine and has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders to professional and community groups throughout New England. She and Constance Happy Dickey, RN, are well known for their very informative tick talks that they present all over Maine. And of course, you know Dr. Santier by her infamous lime green jacket. So there it is. Now, it's historically noted and data has been collected, Dr. Santier. And uh, welcome back to Healthy Options and WERU, Dr. Beatrice Santier. It's good to see you again. Thanks, Rhonda. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. So where, where to begin? I, the, season has, um, the season has begun. Oh, long since. I think as of the beginning of May, there were over 90 cases already confirmed in the state. So, yeah, it, it is high tick season. So what, are, what size are, the, are those little critters right now? You know, um, or- in the early spring, so somewhere around March, the adults are actually the questing ticks. And they're probably um, sesame seed sized. But the ticks that are getting active right now are the nymphal stage um, and they're poppy seed sized. So um, very tiny, sort of freckle, period at the end of a sentence sized ticks. So difficult to find unless you're actively looking for them and thus the importance of a, a serious tick check. And I encourage folks to do it every day. Um, looking and feeling for these tiny bumps that um, that might be traveling along their their bodies. You know the hot spots behind the knees and the groin, at the waistband, at the bra line, under the armpits, behind the ears, and the scalp. Um, they're they're good animals. They're just being good animals. You don't have to like them, but you have to respect them. And they're looking for a good blood meal. So either where your clothes restrict their passage or where um, where they find uh, ready access to a, a good blood meal is the likely places to find them, but all over your body. So, Well, already um, I've had people report 14 ticks on them. Ooh. All at once? I, yeah, well, I don't think all at once. <laughs> I've had people talk about being in events and saying, what's this? And ticks literally falling out of their hair. Ooh. Yes. We're, uh, did you, I don't know if there's uh, more this year or we're just well, more a little bit more consciousness, hopefully. I, maybe both, you yes. know, I, but I do think it's, it's expected to be uh, a pretty big tick year. You know, the ingredients for that, relatively mild temperatures. Um, I know we had a, a cold February, but otherwise, you know, winter was relatively mild. We had good snowpack. 
that permits great survival um, under the leaf litter, under the snow. And uh, when the temperatures get above freezing, some say 37, although I've seen reports that talk about uh, in good snowpack areas, 28 degrees might be enough. But somewhere know. around freezing. So even in the winter, active. even in the winter, we have to. You have to be aware of where you are, and that yes. if we have mild days, yeah. um, they it's, can be active. Okay. Sure. So when we're talking about let's let's go through the basics. I mean, we have a lot to talk about. There's some Thank new you. ticks in Maine. There's some new information and such. But let's uh, let's go through the basics again because I am constantly surprised that um, people are still not aware or doing it, what can we do? It's challenging, you know. It it just really is. We become most aware when someone we know is impacted or we're impacted ourselves. And but sure. that Human that nature. number of people is increasing. So more and more people are in fact becoming aware and, and that's the good news, I think. This is a potentially preventable infectious disease. So your level best action is to keep it from happening in the first place. Your second best action is to recognize it early. So early, it might look like a rash. Um, people talk about the rash as a bullseye. I want to dispel that myth right now. Um, although it can have a bullseye appearance and everybody will recognize that rash, the most common appearance for the Lyme rash called erythema migrans is a uniformly red expanding rash. Typically, it happens at the site of a tick bite, but most people who get Lyme disease never see the tick. So uh, an expanding pinkish salmon-y red rash uh, should get your attention and alert you to the possibility that you have Lyme disease. The rash is the diagnosis. If you have a rash, we treat. Um, along with that rash, you might have flu-like symptoms. What does that even mean? You know, fever, headache, chills, that achy, tired, I can't move another step. So generalized sort of symptoms along those lines. Um, not everyone gets a rash. The other important piece of information in the reported and confirmed cases in Maine this year, I think it was about 49% of those cases also had a rash as part of their story. That, you know, so that means in the last year, 51% did not. Does that mean the rash happens only half the time? Probably not. Everybody believes that there are probably many cases of rash illness alone that are not being reported, but we don't know. You know, Who knows? We don't know. You're not uh, recognizing it for what it is. Right. or It's on your back and you don't live with anybody and right. you can't see it. Precisely. And the rash tends not to have any symptoms associated with it. It doesn't itch doesn't necessarily. Itch, doesn't burn. Can it? Yes. Yeah. But usually it doesn't. So it's a mild experience, if anything. And that's the other part of the problem, I guess, sometimes with even those flu-like symptoms. If they're mild, you know, most of us keep going. We, we may not stop and pay attention, but just uh, so folks know, it would be really important to notice those things this time of year and right th certainly through the summer months because that's um, the, the time when most cases of early disease are reported. So just be really aware of that. Don't dismiss uh, those symptoms. Let somebody know. 
So that that kind of is early. Um, if it has the opportunity to spread and progress, you might have multiple rashes. Um, you might also uh, have uh, what we call a facial nerve palsy, so involvement of the cranial nerves. The most common one is that facial nerve, and that can give you a little drooping on one side of your face. Um, very important to let someone know that's happening. And uh, unlike most cases of facial nerve palsy, the ones that are caused by Lyme need antibiotics, not steroids. So we need to make that distinction. Um, other cranial nerves can be involved. People can sometimes have uh, double vision, um, uh, trouble swallowing, uh, ringing in their ears, so a number of different symptoms of that sort. Probably the big late finding we worry about is uh, Lyme affecting the heart. Uh, not particularly common, but when it happens, it can be devastating. So um, the most commonly reported symptom is probably palpitations. Um, but the most worrisome presentation is uh, a problem with the conduction system, what we call heart block. That needs treatment and uh, sometimes treatment in hospital with uh, a temporary pacemaker. So there can so be some that, serious consequences. That, what does that look like? Um, some people may feel dizzy. You may have chest pain. Um, some people it's found entirely because you present feeling generally unwell. We do an, uh, an electrocardiogram, an EKG, and we see that conduction problem on the EKG. So maybe you don't have those symptoms. But most commonly, people will have some kind of dizziness, uh, sometimes fainting, um, low blood pressure. Not, you know, yes. you're not a well person if you have carditis. You come in quite sick. So, And finally, I guess the last one would be um, a swollen or painful knee. Lyme arthritis is another late manifestation. The late neurologic kinds of manifestations are more like um, problems with thinking. Um, what does that mean? Uh, you know, your your math skills are suddenly horrible. Your, your reading is not uh, in order. Your memory is affected. Sometimes attention is affected. So those can be more subtle symptoms. Some people get a peripheral neuropathy, so numbness or tingling in the extremities. Um, some people get radicular pain, that is, not ridicular, <laughs> but, but pain that maybe goes from the neck down an arm or down a limb, um, a headache, again, those kinds of symptoms. So Lyme can have a very varied uh, presentation. What becomes important after the earliest signs is that we pay attention to clusters of symptoms that happen together. Um, fatigue with neurologic symptoms and um, joint kinds of symptoms should get our attention and make us think about this. So, of course, uh, people, I, I just caution everybody, just take a deep breath. Uh, people are sitting in there cars, living rooms, kitchens going, I have all of that. <laughs> and possibly you do. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so take a breath. We'll, we'll yeah. talk about what to do. Well, and, and, and the, the other problem, of course, is that not all of this is Lyme. Um, the there trick. are many lookalikes. So when you're seeing a healthcare provider, you no more want someone who's only going to think of Lyme than you want someone who will never think of Lyme. You want them to consider all of the possibilities for the symptoms you have and address them for you. 
and and that's so important. Um, so has there been any changes in the testing? And do we know what – I'm noticing there's some research here. Well, but you can tell us more about the ELISA test and what yeah. that means in the Western blot. And well, the testing so far has not changed. Um, we are still um, relying on antibody tests predominantly. So that's your body's reaction to the infection. Now, as I say, if you show up with the rash or if you show up with flu-like symptoms in the right story – it's, we should just treat and everybody it, agrees on that. But beyond that place, if we are – if we're suspicious for it and we want to try and find some support in the laboratory, um, we are still quite dependent on antibody testing. Um, what's new in that is currently what is recommended is a two-step pro, uh, approach to it where – an ELISA, which is a quantitative test of your antibodies. What is, does that mean? It's it's looking for how much. How much? Do you yeah. have a lot mm-hmm. of antibody? Um, so it's based on that. Is done first if that's positive or um, iffy, equivocal. Then we go on to do the, a second test called a Western blot. That's the recommended scheme. Um, the Western blot looks at more. Um, qualitative kinds of things, which particular reactions are we finding in the blood? And there are criteria for interpretation. That scheme of testing, the one followed by the other, has proved to be insufficiently sensitive to do clinically, um, uh, to use clinically for for patient care. Um, it, It just compounds the problems with each of the tests so that you know, if you imagine the first test picks up 80% of cases um, and the second test picks up 80% of cases, that means we're still going to miss almost 40% if we rely on the tests alone. And in fact, in the vaccine trials, the most studied population on the planet to date, I mean, they were tested repeatedly, if they had relied on the antibody tests alone, um, they would have missed a third of the cases of definite Lyme disease in that group. So, the, you know, no single piece of data is enough for making a diagnosis. It has to be taking the whole story, the physical findings, which can be subtle. So it's important that your provider is looking carefully and and the lab tests as they are appropriate and, and looking at that. The change that may come is um, – Uh, we may get the recommendation to go from using an ELISA followed by a Western blot to using two ELISAs. The thought behind that is that that means we use two automated tests and it takes the labor-intensive test out of the grouping. Um, We'll see. You mean the Western blot? The Western blot, which is more labor-intensive, a little more subjective. You know, somebody is deciding whether it's positive or negative and how it shows. So it will be interesting to see if that carries through. Um, nothing definite on that yet. But the the fun part that I want to tell you about testing possibilities is some new thinking around testing. Uh, Neil Spector is uh, a physician and cancer specialist, actually, who had his own uh, challenging close encounter with Lyme disease that went undiagnosed for a lengthy period of time, ended up with um, a a severe problem with his heart and heart muscle that led to heart transplant. I mean, he he 
he would be considered a, an unusual case. But it changed his life in many ways, and and he's remarkable. If you, reading his story is really worthwhile. But he has taken his work with the cancer world and turned his eyes to looking at, well, why can't we look at Lyme in the same way? In the same way that not all cancer is the same, he is suggesting that not all Lyme is one disease. It's it's perhaps several different things. And in the ways that we have now targeted parts of uh, different cancers and are creating um, uh, antibodies directed to fight that, so immuno kinds of therapies. He's looking at targeting uh, the Lyme spirochete in a similar way and perhaps uh, taking us down a path that we have not been on before, both in terms of diagnosis and then treatment. So m- much more to come. I mean, this is brand new early stage thinking around this. And this is separate from the co-infections. Yes, because we know that it's not just it's not, not just, just Lyme. Yeah, Lyme. we have no good news for anyone today. So you I'm know they're going to. I, I hope they don't the, turn us off. Break out the chocolate. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is chocolate has been proven to be beneficial. You got to love that. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, well. All right. But yes. But no. We, we're not. It's we, not. We just have Lyme. no investment in chocolate. No. Sales. But, well, okay. I have a, a personal investment, but not, <laughs> it doesn't get me any money. It just gets me, you know, hips. <laughs> um, no, um, it, it is not just Lyme. Yeah. And if we look at the uh, the data in Maine around co-infections, they too are just exploding in in numbers. Um, anaplasma cases yes, that's what through I the roof. Do. And what? How does that differ from? Well, what are people looking at? Well, they're different bacteria, different organisms. Anaplasma is a white blood cell parasite, so it invades. Um, the the neutrophil, one of your infection-fighting cells. Um, it's related to um, a group called the rickettsia. The, the, probably the familiar rickettsia people have heard about is Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So it's in that general family. And um, it invades the white blood cells. Uh, the symptoms are usually more severe for people and more abrupt in their onset. Um, and those symptoms include generally a high fever, shaking chills, headaches, muscle aches. Um, if we look uh, at blood, we can sometimes see the organisms inside those white blood cells um, associated sometimes with a low white count as well as low platelet count, which can be dangerous for people, leads to bleeding problems. And um, some effect to the liver so that the liver function tests can be elevated. So a a really important disease to be aware of. Um, And, you know, there are fatal cases of of this disease. So while we don't often think about Lyme as being a fatal disease, though it can be, it would be uncommonly so, uh, this one can be a fatal disease right up front, particularly in older patients or patients with other underlying illnesses. So, Well, the white blood cells where it's all about our immune. I mean, this is always about the immune system, but, yeah, but, but this is very, very directly. Yeah, like directly challenging. Challenging, yeah. yeah. So, Does it mimic, do people think they have leukemia or something? Or? Um, you know, probably not, but, yeah. but I think you become so abruptly ill that, oh, that so. people are more likely to have this one identified early on. 
but it can occur together with Lyme. And, you know, there's not – we don't really have a lot of data about what happens when these things occur together. Does How does that change the appearance of each of the illnesses? Oh, not a yes. lot of information around that. So it can it uh, alter it? Yeah, well, yeah, we believe it can. So uh, the testing that we would do to prove this is uh, usually at this point PCR. We used to do um, early antibody tests and then check another antibody test later. But I think the thinking right now is that PCR, which is a DNA test for the, this particular bacteria, is oh. what's done. And surprisingly enough, it, it tends to be positive in people affected. I, I also favor looking at a blood smear. You know, it's pretty old-fashioned, but I'm pretty old. So looking at blood smears it really can give us a lot of information if we can take the time to really uh, carefully evaluate. So would you re- recommend that in general as I someone do. comes in? And that's where you're looking. That's where you. That's the PCR. That's well. The blood smear isn't PCR, no. but PCR is a send out. Mm-hmm. It's going to take some time to come back. In this because one, like DNA. in so many of these, um, we don't recommend waiting. If you suspect it, treat it. Um, so that's for the provider. But if you're if you're the the consumer of care, um, it, it, you want treatment right away for this one. Uh, treat before you know. For sure. If it's suspected, it should be treated. And the good news is treatment is very much like what we use uh, for the first-line treatment of Lyme, which is doxycycline, so a tetracycline um, drug. Now, that's something new, uh, relatively new. Children. We have long, long said that we should not be using tetracycline antibiotics for children under 8. And the reason for that is um, its impact on on, um, oh my gosh, permanent teeth. It can stain them and uh, some some impact on bone development. Well, it turns out there are now several good studies looking at the use of doxycycline specifically in children under eight and it, it appears that it does not impact teeth or bones. So, that's pretty good news. Um, we have uh, pediatricians have known for a long time, and and other physicians, that if it's a life threatening illness, we don't worry about the teeth. We use doxycycline, but it looks like it's it's going to be a much more accepted practice. I don't mm. think it's made it to textbook level yet, but it is uh, definitely one of those items that's been reviewed and looked at carefully in the literature and is becoming a recommendation. I want to hold that thought because we more to continue just a little bit of business. If you've just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. And we're talking ticks and tick-borne illnesses with our guest today, Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you for joining us. So the, the whole – if you have the rash – if you don't have the rash, if you have the system symptoms, a clinical diagnosis, yeah. and a, um, we're treating and we treat immediately, people are still getting. I'm I'm talking to people all the time. Yes, I got my ten ten days. I got yeah. my ten day dose, yeah. or or we're just going to wait and see. Let's wait and see. I've, I've just uh, recently heard that my doctor told me to wait and see, and if something happens in a month or so. Then we'll, uh, you know, or the single dose, or or well, yeah. It, so what's what? What are we thinking about when we're talking about about treatment on yeah. on that level? We can. Yeah. There are other ways. 
I, I think when we're talking about treating the disease, which is different from trying to prevent the disease using an antibiotic, which which is oh, sometimes yes. confused by by very good practitioners. I, I'm not ah. picking on my colleagues at all. But, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, you get so much information in that you start to put them in, in the wrong pile, the pieces of information. So let's do tick bite in a minute. There is no role for single-dose antibiotics in the treatment of early Lyme disease. Done. None. There is, yeah, no role for that. So if you have erythema migrans rash, the expanding red rash, um, or your physician is concerned that you have, your, your healthcare provider is concerned you have Lyme disease, no role for single-dose doxycycline. Once the diagnosis is Lyme, we're not using a single dose. The 10-day doxycycline dose is one of the recommendations that's um, fairly commonly handed down. But let me tell you what we really know about this. Um, from the early studies of Lyme disease, where, and we don't have a lot of treatment trials, we know that three weeks of an antibiotic, uh, and there were several antibiotics looked at, so three weeks has a greater than 75% likelihood of complete resolution of symptoms and prevention of late consequences. So it, it, it approaches 80% uh, of success. And that's success that is uh, determined by patient-preferred outcomes. What we expect as patients is to get back to our original state of health, 80%. 75 to 80%. That's really pretty good information. 10 days in those studies was less effective. It drops into the 60% range. So I, I think people can do 10 days. You can do three weeks. My inclination is to use a slightly longer program because I have seen people um, uh, relapse or not completely recover with that. But whatever the starting point, whether it's 10 days, three weeks, or four weeks. The key here is follow-up because people should be symptom-free at the end of their treatment. And if they're not, the good news is we have this information from those studies too. If people were not symptom-free at the end of treatment, the investigators in those studies treated them again and were very successful. So uh, that's just important to know. I would not recommend 10 days as a starting point. There is one study that is often pointed to that suggests that 10 days is equally good. The problem with that study is that they had like a 50% dropout rate. So we really can't draw those conclusions from it. You know, um, I understand how they did it. I know what they were thinking, but we can't draw the conclusions. So you really have to use the stuff where we can legitimately make some judgments. So the other qu important part of that is are there, are there risk factors? Are there presentation signs that might tell you who's going to need a longer course of antibiotics? And it turns out there are. People who are extremely ill at the time of diagnosis are likely to need a longer course of antibiotics. People who have neurologic symptoms at the time of diagnosis are likely to need longer antibiotics. If you have multiple EM rashes at the time of diagnosis, you're likely to need longer. And all of these make sense because they suggest 
that you have a spread infection, that this is not a localized disease, but that it's spread beyond. Um, the, uh, the other factor that predicts needing longer course of antibiotics is you're still sick at the end of your first course. So, um, so and we, we re- this is really solid data. We really can use this. So that's where treatment really ought to be started. And the key, as always, is careful follow-up. So uh, with the anaplasma, with, when you're that sick, is this the same thing, doxycycline? Uh, doxycycline is a good choice, yeah. So, so that and then three weeks. The good on. news on anaplasma is actually I think the, if, if we think you have anaplasma and only anaplasma, the, the wisdom is that you need to go at least three days beyond when the fever breaks. I think, um, you know, the conventional wisdom is probably that you would be treated for two to three weeks. So, you know, a lot of people who are listening and listen to us um, have a lot to say about other kinds of treatment. And as I I say it, as, as a healthcare practitioner, if you have the rash, if you have a very clear sense... It seems to me that that's the moment to really grab and really get rid of that. And and we have that kind of technology with the antibiotics. And it doesn't mean that you're not – you can even do it – although there are some things that we say don't do it simultaneously with antibiotics, certain right. herbs and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But um, I really don't see these as mutually exclusive treatment strategies. No. Um, and I don't know. And you know, we don't have the data in some ways, although I know Steve Berner, Ber, Berner does. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, and those things are working very well. Yeah. But I think we have to differentiate, I think, what we're doing here between an acute situation. Yeah. Like, I have this now and I'm really sick yeah. versus I didn't get treated for this. And, and now we're in a different – and we can talk about that right. too – because when you're in untreated Lyme territory or ineffectively treated or yeah. you're one of the 20 percent, right. then we have to look at uh, perhaps other More, ways. I, I think that's a really good way to, to think about it. I, I think you know there are some things that we have pretty good data on what to do. Um, early Lyme, we actually do have good data to support these actions. Um, uh, Lyme arthritis, Lyme carditis, Lyme meningitis. That, the data is not as good on meningitis. On carditis, it's pretty decent. But still, not a lot of studies. So, I, I mean, there are certain manifestations of the illness that we do, we know to get in and aggressively treat with antibiotics and we get good results. And again, always the key is follow-up. If If at first you don't succeed, try again. I think that it is in later... Um, either miss or missed diagnoses or in individuals for whom the disease is persistent that we really have to consider all the other possibilities support why these symptoms are persisting. Is it persistent infection? There's some very good data to support that this bacteria is able to survive reasonable courses of antibiotics. So, so, and we have that in human data, we have it in um, animal data, it can survive. So persistent infection has to be on our list, but also persisting inflammation without 
persisting infection. Some, in some cases, uh, identifying debris from these organisms as the causative part of the inflammation. Um, damage to tissues, we have to consider that. We have to consider that we can turn on parts of the immune system, the so-called autoimmune phenomenon. So there are lots of options once we miss it. And, of course, a missed uh, co-occurring infection, a co-infection. Let's talk about co-infections mm-hmm. and how how would they present? I mean, what are we talking about? Um, well, Bartonella, well, some people have uh, – it's showing up. What else? Bartonella is an interesting one to talk about. You know, that's probably um, the most controversial of the co-infections uh, only in that, not not that it's not making people sick. It, we know it happens in people. We know that ticks can carry it. What we don't have very clear evidence on is that ticks can transmit it. Um, there is a growing body of evidence there, but but I'm kind of a simple thinker. I don't care how you get it if you have it. So from that standpoint, um, whatever background or other infectors or um, conditions you have need to be addressed as well. And and so Bartonella is one of those. Um, you know, when I was coming up in my uh, education, we were we learned about Bartonella hensile, which causes uh, what people are probably familiar with, cat scratch disease. And that's usually fever, a little local swollen lymph node. It, not surprisingly, you could get it from cat scratches. Um, and the the wisdom was treat it, don't treat it, it goes away. Self-limited infection. Oops. Not entirely true. It, it is true for some people. Um, I'm sure that Lyme is sometimes a self-limited infection for some people. But uh, Bartonella can be an extremely consequential infector, impacting the brain, impacting the eyes, impacting the heart. Uh, joints, it is, it's a surprisingly big deal. And so if it is present, we really do need to address it regardless of how it got there. So and I know uh, some of the clients I've talked to um, have went through the whole treatment, had very good acute care, yeah. um, still are not well. Yeah. And they're the whole, it's almost like the, it's almost like uh, they got they plateaued at a certain place, and yeah. it was about foggy thinking, and yeah. it often was th- some joint issues, and for what, a variety of reasons, they were treated for Bartonella. There was no testing; it wasn't anything like that, yeah. and it worked. It took them over the top. It really, it so. really worked. So, you know. Yeah. This is where we're we're in that category. Um, this is where some Western herbs, Chinese herbs, homeopathy. Um, I don't know what the data is on that. We right. really need that. We were discussing we, that earlier. We it would be great uh, to have some of those studies done. Um, but there are amazing results that yeah. I, I, that I've seen, well, and I think other practitioners have seen. But um, but I think that has to be the two prong. Let's not miss anything. No. And I know it's it's incredible because of these kinds of infections, many of us who never would consider taking antibiotics <laughs> in our lives and who haven't yeah. are going, oh yes. Well or also and we haven't talked about the what we're what the clothes we're wearing, the permethrin yeah. and and wow. you know yes, I'm gonna put pick here I'm gonna put this stuff on my on my skin. And it's like 
wow, we, we literally are picking our poison. Yeah. And um, we know that lemon eucalyptus. Oil of lemon eucalyptus. Yay. Yay. You know, has we've been, been looking, looking for essential oils that we can prove work. And this one, generally speaking, and uh, essential oils are not subject to uh, – they, they don't have to be evaluated for safety and efficacy. They get a pass. They're considered probably safe. Um, we could talk about the wisdom of that, but we don't have to. Um, oil of lemon eucalyptus. It, it is a one herb. It is it not is, lemon plus eucalyptus, that's right. everybody. And yeah. This has been looked at and there's there's data for its safety and efficacy. And so for folks who are looking for that alternative to um, synthetic chemicals, we have one. And and you have to read the label, use the right percentages because it tends to be kind of a high percentage, like 20 to 30 percent. And recall that you are slathering this on your skin. And and so, you know, everything we put on the skin might be an irritant. You have to pay attention to that. I tell folks, regardless of which kind of uh, repellent you're using, never on the backs of kids' hands, you know, they, they rub their, their eyes. eyes. Um, if you dress for success, we sort of have waxed into prevention, though we have a couple more things to talk about in co-infections. But no, no question but, about it. I, I, but but I, but we should do this. Yes. You know, um, I, the the whole thing about lemon eucalyptus. I should say, yeah. you never put essential oils directly on your skin. You have to dilute them in yeah. something. Aloe right. vera. There is their carriers. You don't. That would be very right. very not a hundred percent. Not hundred percent on the skin. And that's that is important. You, you just need to take a stroll through poison control information and, right. and you can find that out pretty quickly. But um, there's a great EPA website that uh, is a tool for finding the repellent that's right for you. I, I'm sure you'll post the, uh, the site on your, on your page later. Yes. But it's, it's great because you can type in what, how long you're going to be out, uh, whether you need protection from ticks, mosquitoes, ticks and mosquitoes. And what you can even specify what you're willing to use, whether you're willing to use DEET, whether you're looking at all of them. And it's just terrific because these are EPA registered stuff. Um, When you're looking for oil of lemon eucalyptus, you may have to look under the heading uh, P like in Papa, M like in Mike, D like in Delta, PMD. That's its uh, chemical name, and it may be listed under that. And I wish I could uh, just quickly call off to you what the chemical name is written out, but I can't. So PMD is oil of lemon eucalyptus. Take a look for that. Okay. All so, right. And then the, the uh, IR3535 yeah. in the... There, there are, you know, there are other repellents that have good track records. DEET's still the gold standards, more than 60 years of mm. safety and efficacy data. The key to the safe use of DEET, the concentration needs to be greater than 23%, more than 50%. You're not getting more, really, just more toxicity. Um, the key to using it safely is washing it off after your uh, adventure. Uh, the in, Looking through their safety data, the problems that have occurred over those years occurred with high-dose applications repeatedly over an extended period of time without washing it off. So wash it off. Um, 
if you and if, if again if you dress for success your application area is minimal IR3535 was used in Europe for many years it is available widely in the US now the studied dose was 15% it is usually available as 20%, 20%. Um, it is found to be as effective as DEET. Its claim to fame is you don't have to wash it off. Again, simple thinker, chemical, wash, wash it off. It off. Um, finally, picaridin. Uh, 20% picaridin has been found to be in some studies more effective than DEET. Um, but what we have found, and I don't know that this is written up, so this is this is anecdotal, take it for what it's worth, that um, people with chemical sensitivities tend to tolerate picaridin better than the others. So so finding the one that's right for you, that works for you, that you can um, use. Now, repellents have to be used on skin to be effective. Um, it, they work with your body oils and your body heat to create a vapor layer that I, I say is repellent to uh, these creatures. It, it messes up their perception of of carbon dioxide and heat so it makes you not as big a target and so if you're putting it on your clothes that's nice but not as effective you get only part of that heat thing and and none of the body uh, oils so for clothes yes permethrin just mm-hmm. a crucial and well studied now permethrin is your friend useless on your skin fantastic on clothing and gear. It won't melt anything the way DEET does. Um, And we have excellent data that shows if you tuck your shirt into your pants, your pants into your socks, create that barrier and treat shoes, socks, and pants with permethrin, there is a 70% reduction in tick attachments. How do you prevent Lyme disease? Prevent tick attachments. So, and so, you, what about the spray versus having it, buying it, or sending it off to Insect Shield, where we don't no. get any percentage no. right. when we say that word? Right. Um, this, but no, no, Insect Shield isn't paying us to tell you about this. But if you do your own clothing, if you treat your own, um, it's a little labor intensive for you. Make sure you do it in an open air environment because inhaled is different from soaked into your clothes and dried there. Uh, you. Spray the clothes to wet, let it dry in. Once it dries in, it's inert. That is, it's not a risk to your cat anymore. Uh, Wet, it is a risk to your cat. But once it dries in, not anymore. And even once you wash it, it will last through several washes, so several weeks, and then you have to redo it. Um, If you send it away, you can either send your own clothes or purchase pre-treated clothes from a company, uh, Insect Shield specifically, but um, there may be others who do this. They are the ones that I know. Yeah, they marketed their product. But the factory-treated item uh, will last through 70, 7-0 washes, which is widely thought to be the lifetime of a piece of clothing. Not in my house, but, you know, for some things. And and so it, uh, it can be a very reasonable thing to do. Okay. This is Healthy Options, by the way, if you've just tuned in. And on WERU Community Radio, I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're here with Dr. Beatrice Santier. We're talking about ticks and tick-borne disease. Let's, I can't believe how quickly this is going. Always. So let's go back to talking about those co-infections because I think we don't want to we, – we were discussing the Bartonella and then some people yeah. having that foggy thinking and, yeah. and getting treated for that even though – Yeah. Well, we can't always no prove it. it. We try to look. But, you know, I, I try to keep – 
folks thinking about um, a whole picture, the form of the illness, looking at clusters of symptoms and not allowing any single data point to determine what's going on. The other co-infection we probably, there are two, uh, we definitely want to talk about. One is uh, Powassan virus, yes. which um, we do not have treatment for. Uh, it travels, one of the lines of Powassan virus travels in the same tick, the uh, black-legged tick, scapularis, deer tick that carries Lyme disease and the other infections we're talking about. Um, it, it, Powassan affects the nervous system and has a, a real mortality associated with it. It can be a fatal illness. We had a fatal case of Powassan in the state of Maine a, couple, a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three cases of Powassan virus diagnosed last year in Maine. So it, it's it's here. Uh, I think MMCRI is looking at some prevalence studies to find out how how many of the infected ticks that, that were um, Maine Medical Center Research Institute, some elegant work they do, looking to see um, what the prevalence is in, in the tick population. Uh, I, I think that will be a helpful thing. I, uh, so Powassan and Babesia, we, we haven't talked about that, which is an increasingly common infection yes. in Maine also, not growing at quite the speed that Ehrlichia is, but definitely a, a growing uh, concern. It is a malaria-like parasite that invades red blood cells. And so if you think about what would go with that, um, uh, fevers, sweats, uh, short of breath, sometimes an anemia, um, uh, headache, uh, those kinds of symptoms. Um, and we have some pretty good studies that tell us that when Lyme and Babesia occur together, um, it is harder to treat those illnesses and you can be prolongedly ill and uh, a greater challenge for, for getting to well. Um, Babesia diagnosis, uh, often done with PCR. Um, again, this is another That's case the where the DNA test mm-hmm. Uh, we can do antibody tests, but none of the testing is perfect. There are different strains of Babesia that cause illness. In large part, out on the East Coast, we think that there's a particular strain, Babesia microti, that is more common. But we, there are definite reports of some of the strains that have been thought to be only on the West Coast. So, you know, you just have to keep an open mind about it. And this is another circumstance where looking at the blood smear can be helpful because if you take a long enough time to look, you can sometimes identify these forms inside of red blood smells, red blood cells. You can, you can really yeah. see, you can see the organism. You, you can. can see the bacteria. Within the cell. That's why we, right. That's so, literally under the microscope. Literally. Literally under, under the, under the microscope. microscope. Yeah. Well, why not? Yeah. yeah, and, and now it can take a long time. The last time I did this, I, I looked for an hour and a half to identify enough fields where I was certain there were inclusions. So, you know, it's it's you have to let pathologists know that you're worried about this. Um, we talk about that slide as being the gold standard, but that was for um, it was identified for very acute, aggressive cases of Babesia in people who don't have a spleen. So if you don't have a spleen, you you can't clear this from your blood very well. So those people have like 7% of their blood cells involved or, or more. 
probably for the average person who has a working spleen, it will be harder to find. Yes. So you have to be persistent if you suspect it. Well, I do know, again, in, in the homeopathic world, in certain worlds, in certain herbal worlds that that actually the treating Lyme and treating uh, Babesia are actually – Pretty similar. And they're in the you – know, they're in the same tre- um, remedies. Right. You know, and, and well. it's, it's – been effective. That's fascinating it to is. me, really. It is. So. It is. And uh, but again, this is uh, right. anecdotal. Until well, let's let's but get still. that data. We really do need. But it's but, it's but working, it's and it's and people are feeling better, and that's really the yeah. the most important thing. Um, yeah. Literally going from I can't think, I can't do anything to I'm, I'm back. I'm back yeah. at work. So well. we also have different ticks now. Well, are we ready to discuss? Uh, yes. There, there are emerging uh, tick species, not well established yet here in the state, but um, definitely some that are here, uh, called the Lone Star Tick or Amblyoma americanum. Now, it is not known to transmit Lyme disease itself, though it can transmit a Lyme-like illness called Starry, the cause of which is not been identified. It was thought for a while that it was uh, Borrelia burgdorferi, the agent of Lyme disease, but it is not. Uh, Then it was suggested that it might be another Borrelia called Borrelia, guess what, Lone Starry. Um, (laughs) Appears that that may not be the case either. We, We don't know, but it looks and acts like Lyme and at this point is we would treat it like Lyme because from the outside looking in, the rash is indistinguishable. There are probably some distinguishing features, but not for the casual observer. So it and it seems people do well. In addition to that, it can transmit Ehrlichia, which is a relative of anaplasma. So, you know, more bad. That's badness. where the high fever is in Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um here's here's the 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 newsworthy item. Um it can a tick bite from an amblyoma americanum tick can result in an allergy to red meats. And it's based on this uh, uh, carbohydrate uh, sugar called alpha-gal, alpha-galactosidase, blah, 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 blah. And uh, people have real anaphylaxis like, you know, swollen airways and inability to breathe and hives. And it can be a very severe uh, allergy and it seems to be persistent. It doesn't just go away; it lasts. So, <laughs> I think what you said earlier was that it it's turning people into vegetarians. Well, well certainly, uh, certainly yeah. pesco vegetarian. There's certainly uh, right, but, right, but fish and red meat. But there's certainly uh, more, more, more benign ways to yeah. become uh, yeah. a pesco vegetarian. Yeah. Well, alpha gal is is in that tick's saliva, and it's also a component. I think it's in the saliva, also a component of these red meats. And uh, the allergy is a persisting allergy. It's really impressive. You can imagine the first people who experienced it and how challenged they were in getting this figured out. Oh my goodness! It was, yes. it was difficult. And there's a new tick that they've found in New Jersey, a European uh, long-horned tick that is suddenly shown up um, that has has the potential for a lot of uh, uh, challenges. It, it, it's not only in New Jersey. I think West Virginia has a population and there was another state, and I just can't remember right now which, but in this little cluster, don't know where it came from or why it's here, how it got here. It is, it is a Eurasian tick. And uh, and it's now 
uh, what is, got a growing population. Disease? Different diseases, but 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 similarly uh, able to carry and transmit pathogens has generally been thought of as a pathogen for um, uh, an animal, for animals, cows and, and such. But I believe there are human pathogens as well. Oh so and we don't know yet tuned. about the antibiotics. We don't know yet about treatment and such. Or, okay. Yeah. Now, I know we only have a few minutes, but one of the things in terms of the treatment, because if I'm recalling, the, the, the tick creates a cyst, all right? They become not a cyst in you, but they, they, there's biofilm. There's a way oh, yeah. that, that, that it becomes harder to treat the longer it's there. So what yeah. happens? What do we know about that in that, terms of that? That is a really complicated conversation to have. Okay. Um, there has been some evidence in the lab for the uh, formation of biofilm, although in one of the recent uh, evaluations of, of uh, monkey uh, Lyme, which is a very good human comparative model, uh, the investigators did not actually find biofilm in those tissues. Now, they left one staining method out, so the jury's still out. But in the lab, there's biofilm. In the lab, we can also show a cystic or cell wall deficient form. There, there are a number of um, things that we've shown in the lab that it's not clear what's happening in people. So can we directly translate it? Maybe not. But the persister form may be these cell wall deficient forms or it may be just an altered state of this bacteria so that it's not that it is resistant to antibiotics. It's this tolerance that seems to develop in a subpopulation. So there can be certain um, population of these uh, organisms that seem to last. Um, the folks doing the big work on that are both at Johns Hopkins and at Northeastern University, I'd say. And they have been trying to come up with combinations of antibiotics that we might use long term. Um, there is one, uh, one or two papers now that have been um, uh, published with sort of clinical trials of some of these antibiotic combinations that are looking promising. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, you know, every, if we knew the answer, we'd all be doing it. So I think we're still looking for what those answers are. So in terms of Lyme literate doctors, we only have a few minutes left. So yeah. um, in terms of, of actually having longer term uh, treatment, is that coming? Uh, the CDC is this? Um, well, you know, I think uh, th here's the fun thing on that. Uh, the Health and Human Services, uh, Federal Health and Human Services uh, Department has uh, called for a vector-borne work group, and this has been federally mandated by the 21st Century Cures Act. And the plan is for this group, uh, two people from Maine are on this co committee, which is kind of exciting, uh, is to look at the gaps in knowledge, the gaps in response, uh, research, education, and come up with plans. It's it's a six-year plan. Their first report is due this, uh, I think, fall, December maybe. So um, the first report will be from that group. And and I mean I'm optimistic that if if people are looking seriously at what we know, what we don't know and how we can do a better job that maybe we'll have – uh, new insights and new directions for um, our research and, and new ways to fund some studies that will take us over the top. You know, the um, uh, 
the NIH research studies that were done at clinical trials to see if retreatment with antibiotics works in people who remain symptomatic, two out of four of them had definite evidence that it is effective. So that means two out of four didn't. The jury is way way out on that. Mm-hmm. To find, I encourage folks if you have a primary care person, uh, you trust, you trust you. Work with them. You can consult with someone who may have more specific knowledge on this topic, but persist in in seeking care because there is care available, and this is a treatable condition at any stage. Best to prevent it. Second best, recognize it early. Third best is everything after that, but still a treatable condition. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, we do have other programs with Dr. B. Santier. It's on the Healthy uh, Options, weru.org website. And um, we can... uh, Certainly, uh, you can certainly check into that. Some of the things we've talked about, some other things we haven't, uh, maybe on those shows, and we're going to continue to do to do shows with that. Um, our guest today on Healthy Options has been Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you for doing the important work <laughs> you and uh, Constance Happy Dicky are doing, and for sharing your valuable insights and information with our WERU audience today. And we will have all these websites that you're recommending and such on on the Healthy Options Archive. We'll have links to these and other information that was mentioned when we post the show on the public affairs section of weru.org. In the meantime, if you've missed any part of this program, would like to share it, again, please go to weru.org for our Find Our Recent Programs on Demand. Also, again, the previous programs with Dr. Santier are archived there under Healthy Options. Thanks to John Greenman for engineering, Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, we appreciate all of our WERU listeners and supporters. Thank you, thank you. I'm Rhonda Feynman, wishing you the best in health. Check out Bookworm, WERU's live radio book club. Join me, Brooke, to hear interviews with local authors where we discuss books, reading, and life. Bookworm airs each month, second Thursday at 10 a.m. Hope you can join us.